Good morning. My name is Wes, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to be with you now to do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, any one of those things, even there's a Bible under the seat in front of you, if you would turn with me to our passage that we're looking at today from Matthew's Gospel, don't freak out. We're not going back there. Just for today. <laughs> Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. And when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew tells us this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went away. They went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, we ask now that you would come open our hearts and minds and eyes and ears to whatever it is you want to accomplish today in us through your word. You promise us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it, God. Would you accomplish whatever that purpose is in each one of us today? As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, the pictures of the scene from the storming of the U.S. Capitol building back uh, January 6, 2021, are now all too familiar to those of us who watched that scene unfold from the safety of our computer and TV and cell phone screens around the world. Uh, it really felt like you were watching something out of a movie, didn't it? Especially Buffalo Helmet Guy. That was just like, it felt like the strangest thing we were watching. And yet as the aftermath of what took place that day continues to unfold two years later now, reveals is very much a, a sad and disturbing reality. It was reportedly the first time in the United States 247-year history that the peaceful transfer of power did not take place. Um, a claim, while, I mean, understandable, given everything that took place on that day, that sort of belies the fact that no transfer of power is ever truly peaceful, is it? 
I mean, there's always going to be someone for whom the transfer of power is the best news ever. It's like, finally, this is what we, this is what our country needs. This is it. And then there's always going to be someone for whom this is the worst news. This is the most terrible thing. Our country is now, it's lost. Here we go. And I guess there's also a third category of people, those who are largely indifferent to the transfer, the people who are like, I don't know, I didn't even vote. You've got that group of people too. But uh, I, what I'm saying is, is that because we live in societies and not vacuums, those differing responses to the transfer of power, let's call them worshipful, wrathful, and withdrawn, those differing responses are always going to create disruption for everyone and therefore always threaten peace for everyone. And I bring it up as we continue in our Advent teaching series here, Long Expected, which again, we're basing around the words of that classic Christmas carol we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, because what we see in our passage today from Matthew's gospel is also about the transfer of power. And you also see those same responses to the transfer of power in the different characters, worshipful, wrathful, and withdrawn. The reason I think it's so important for us to look at this, spend some time here still today, is not for the sake of just recognizing historical parallels in general. Like, oh, isn't that interesting? People responded to the transfer of power then just like they do today. Huh. No, but for one historical parallel in particular, namely the way that we still respond to the proposed transfer of power anyways, between self and the rule and reign of Jesus in some of those exact same ways today, right? Like if there was ever a historical parallel that was worth spending a little time in, it's this. It's the way that we respond to Jesus as king today in some of the exact same ways that these characters responded to, to Jesus as king back then. But here's the thing. Here, here's my big ask from you this morning, if you're willing. Would you be willing to reserve judgment? Just try and reserve judgment as to which one of those responses is yours in particular until we've unpacked each one of them. Could you just kind of hold off doing that? And the reason I ask that is because I think there's a tendency in each one of us, myself included, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus especially, to kind of default to the worship response to Jesus as king. We, we hear that, we look at the three options, and we're like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, so worship, that's my response. Yep. Jesus is my king, I worship him, so worshipful is mine. Can you just hold off for just a minute and, and wait? I think, I think that's a default for many of us, and yet, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but what I know is that as I studied through this passage this week and really just kind of let it land on me and, and hit me, I wanted to speak to me, what I discovered is that the worship response, while that might be aspirationally true for me, like that's what I want, to be true of my life. What I found is that when I took a hard, honest look at myself, uh, as well as just like the evidence of my life and my behavior, what I found is that far more often, my response to Jesus' rule and reign in my life is the other two. It's wrathful or it's withdrawn. That, that's where I often tend to land more. Like just think about the second verse to the carol we just sang uh, from this, that we're basing this series on. Born thy people to deliver, Born a child and yet a king, okay? We're good there, most of us. We're like, right, right, yeah, he was a baby, but he was still the king, and it was it's amazing, amazing that he would be born. We're good, but then we get to born to reign in us. 
forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, not mine. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. Hmm. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Are you beginning to see what I'm talking about here? Like, like, they're all requests that are truly befitting of a king, yes. And yet the problem is, very often, in fact, most often when I sing that, I don't really mean it. I don't really mean that. Like, I might sing that, and yet at the same time, what I know is that the person I truly want to rule and reign in my heart, it's not Jesus, it's me. Is this, I mean, does this sound familiar to anyone? Anyone resonating with this as well? And therefore, here's the thing, the litmus test, the way to truly know how I respond, like what's the reality of my response to Jesus as king is in looking at how you respond whenever Jesus tries to rule and reign. Whenever what you want and what Jesus wants kind of butt up against each other. Or when Jesus tries to be the king in your life in anything more than just title alone. I think that's how we truly know how we respond to the rule and reign of Jesus and this transfer of power to him. So all I want to do for the next few minutes is just unpack each of those responses to Jesus as king that we see in our passage, responding with worship, responding with wrath, and then finally withdrawn in our response. We'll look at those three things, and then we'll use what we learn together to help us honestly evaluate how it is that we respond most often to Jesus as king in our own lives. All right. Which, which, listen, hear me, whatever you discover doesn't mean, doesn't have to mean that that will always remain your response if it turns out to be, ooh, it wasn't what I thought it was. Nor does it mean if you discover my response to Jesus is worship that we aren't still inclined to the other two responses as well. Okay, so something for everybody today. Uh, so let's do this. If you've closed your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again to this passage? Follow along with me. As we explore the coming of this long-expected Jesus, here, born a child and yet a king. All right, so let's look, first of all, at responding with worship. Responding with worship. And where you see this response to Jesus as king in our passage is clearly there in verse 1 with these magi or, or wise men who've traveled from the east in search of this newborn king. Uh, not a great deal is actually known about these men other than the fact that they came from somewhere east of Jerusalem. Uh, we know that they were astrologers as that title magi was both historically understood as well as the fact that they say they were studying the stars and that's what led them on this journey to begin with. Oh, and we know the contents of the presents that they brought for Jesus. That, that's really all we know. We think, we often think we know more, but that's actually all the text tells us, like, uh, uh, how far east, how far east of Jerusalem had they come from? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, although I do subscribe to the uh, viewpoint that they came from Babylon, which I'll explain in a second here. Um, how did they know that this star pointed to Jesus' birth in particular and not just some ruler in general? Right there, uh, I think if, if you study Old Testament history, there's a good chance if these guys really did come from Babylon that they learned this through the prophet Daniel who was put over all the magicians in Babylon during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that, that it was through him that he told them that they should be watching for this star and some of these prophecies from the Old Testament that would point to that. Um, nor do we even know how many of them they were. 
I know there's that classic Christmas carol that tells us there were three, which is really just based on the fact that there was three gifts. We don't actually know how many wise men there were. So maybe there was three. We don't know. And yet what we know without question is from their stated purpose and aim and intent that their 800, some 800-mile 800 journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, the reason they'd come was to worship. They'd come to worship this newborn king. We mention it often here that that word worship comes from an old English word, worship, which basically means it's about ascribing worth or value to someone or something. And so these guys, they, they come and they're bringing these treasures with which to worship this newborn king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Something to keep in mind, though, is that far beyond the monetary value of these gifts that they had brought to Jesus, which was great, by the way. These were valuable kingly gifts which likely would have funded the trip from Jerusalem to Egypt as Jesus and his family fled after this, warned in a dream that they needed to get out of Bethlehem now. What we need to keep in mind is that everything, everything from the funding of this trip all the way from Babylon, not to mention the investment of their time, uh, the, the risk that this journey would have involved in order to travel all this way, uh, the dedicated use of their time and talents in studying the stars, uh, not to mention the courage it must have taken to go to the then ruling, reigning monarch of the country and ask him where the true king of his people had been born. All of these things together, this was all their worship. You see what I mean? It wasn't just the gifts. All of this was involved. It was necessarily what showed that they truly valued and ascribed ultimate worth to this King Jesus, which is such, such an important thing for us to consider in our own lives when you're thinking about what it means to worship Jesus as King yourself and kind of saying, is that my response to him? Because far too often, people default to thinking that the way you show how much value you ascribe to someone is by how big a gift you give, right? Husbands in here, I know you're feeling a lot of that pressure. Boyfriends, like, am I going to say that I don't value my wife? I don't get her a nice enough gift, whatever it is. We kind of default to that position. A lot of times, same thing here. We feel that way of like what I give, that the gift itself is what's describing the value and worth. And no question that these magi, the gifts they brought were, were, were great. They, they gave the best of what they had to offer. And yet, as we see from our passage, what ascribing worth to Jesus cost them was about so much more than money. And I'm not saying this is the case for everyone. I know it isn't. And, and this belief could really just be the result of bad teaching more than anything else. But I think for many people, the reason we default to giving gifts or giving like tithes and offerings, putting something in the plate, that that's kind of, here's my worship, is because it allows us to kind of check the box of worship. I worshiped. I put something in the plate. I've worshiped Jesus today, all the while withholding many of the things that are actually far more valuable to us. Things like our time. Things like our comfort levels. Our, our hopes and our dreams. Those, those things are mine. Like, <laughs> Jesus doesn't get to rule and reign over those. And something it's easy to miss as well as to forget once we've learned it is that what it truly means to bow the knee and worship to Jesus as our king is the surrender of everything that we once called mine. Surrender of everything. Listen, and not because God wants to rob his children of all that they have so that we have to always remain feeling dependent on him. Not at all. 
It's because we are already dependent on him, actually, for everything. Life, breath, health, careers, forgiveness, grace, all these things we recognize we're dependent on him already. And then eventually we just come to what I believe is a right understanding that all this thing, everything that we own and call mine is ultimately his and really just kind of given to us on loan to steward for a little while. It is already his. It's a conclusion, for example, that King David came to uh, when he uh, had collected all the gold and jewels and wealth in order to build the temple. It's what led him to pray, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. So it's the reason why responding to Jesus in worship as our king is the most appropriate and also the most difficult response. Because far more than allowing Jesus to rule and reign over your wallet, your online bank account, which, I mean, you should... It's also about allowing him to reign over your Google calendar. Allowing him to reign over your thought life. Over the words that you speak to other people. Over even your definitions of what he's allowed to call you to do in this life that you call yours. Allowing him to rule and reign over all those things. It, it can seem so innocent. And we all do this in a thousand different ways. We we, we develop a thousand different ways to justify withholding certain things from coming under the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. But the simple question that I think we need to honestly ask ourselves, if that's the case, is, okay, if I still get to decide what Jesus is and is not allowed to reign over, then who is it that's truly the sovereign and on the throne of my life? And who is it or what is it that truly has the greatest value to me? That's why I asked you to wait. That's, that's responding with worship, what it could look like. Next thing I want to look at together with you is responding with wrath. But you clearly see pictured with the response of Herod to Jesus as king in our passage, right? Although not initially, not at first, right? At first, Herod's playing his cards pretty close to his chest, actually. I mean, we know that, that Herod is, is seething with wrath, like he's low-key panicked to the extreme by these guys showing up in their fancy clothes, blinged out camels, kind of asking him, oh, where's the, the true king being born so we can go and worship him? I can't imagine how that conversation went, actually. And we know that not only because Matthew tells us Herod was disturbed, I mean, really the understatement of the century, but because, like, who wouldn't be? You're the king, and someone's coming in saying, where's the real king? Um, absolutely, he's disturbed. And yet apparently, Herod's got an incredible poker face. Um, he presents instead as amazed, curious, hmm, tell me more, yeah. Uh, and even excited to want to go and worship the king himself. Let me know where he is so that I can come too. And yet inwardly, Herod is, is spiraling. He is spiraling into a panicked rage as he sees this announcement of a king as nothing more than a usurper of his throne that must be eliminated by any and any means possible. Which if you know anything about Herod the First or Herod the Great as he's sometimes referred to, it's actually not, that's not unusual for him. That's kind of just par for the course for Herod. Uh, history tells us that uh, Herod was really a paranoid and, and ruthless ruler, put in place by the Romans around 37 B.C., really as a puppet 
king in Jerusalem, who only became all the more ruthless and paranoid as he became ill later in life. Everyone was a threat. Apparently, he even murdered one of his wives and two of his sons, who he saw as potential threats to his throne. No one was allowed to step in, which incidentally is, I think, why Matthew mentions that all Jerusalem was disturbed along with Herod, because they knew what he's like, right? They know how he responds to anything like this. So as soon as this news of this king comes up, I'm sure they're like, oh man, here we go. Who's going to get it this time? So again, although he's, he's presenting uh, intrigued, calm, cool, and collected, Herod is burning inside with a murderous wrath, which as you go on to read, once he finds out that he's been duped by the Magi, they don't come back, tell him where the baby is, he unleashes in full measure. As he has, he commands the slaughter of all the baby boys two years of age and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. Why? Well, because he wants to make sure he doesn't get out. He wants to, to crush and stamp out any would-be replacement before he even has a chance to grow. It's a dark and, and horrific response to the transfer of power, really reminiscent of Pharaoh when Israel were enslaved in Egypt centuries before. So clearly this is a wrathful response to Jesus as king, right? A, a violent and emphatic refusal to accept the peaceful transfer of power, which my guess is that most, if not all of us, we'd see that and we're like, well, that's not me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not commanding the murder of anyone. Yeah, I've got misgivings about what I want to surrender to Jesus and worship, but I don't, I'm not doing that. And obviously Herod's a king. His, his kingdom is being threatened, so that's why he's responding to Jesus this way. I would just want to remind you, if you say that, that as Jesus lives and grows, this is also, if you know the gospel stories, that's very much the response of the religious rulers in Jesus' day as well. Right? They're not, when they see Jesus bringing the kingdom of God, inaugurated by his coming, they don't just say, man, we need to stop him from saying that stuff. They say, this kid is out. We need to take him out now. Not just stop him from saying this stuff. And if you think about the whole idea of our resistance to the transfer of power more broadly, this, this was the same wrathful response to the transfer of power that we saw, no, not to Jesus, but to the next U.S. president, in this events of January 6th, right? As, as, as there was only, a, I guess, I mean, it was a proposed peaceful protest outside the Capitol building, and yet then President Trump also told the crowds around him, quote, fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore. Now, no, and this is not for a moment am I trying to compare the slaughter of innocent children to the storming of the Capitol. It's not the same thing. Nor am I comparing Trump to Herod and these one-to-one comparisons. It's not. All I'm trying to point out is that when presented with the transfer of power from ourselves to anyone else, there's a, there's a tendency in all of us to want to push back, to defend, to, to fight back with all the ferocity of Herod ourselves, certain that if we too don't fight like hell... We're going to lose control of our own destiny. We're going to have to give up holding on to the steering wheel of our own lives. My point is that many times without even realizing it, our response to Jesus as king, to the transfer of power from ourselves to him, is very much the same. It is wrathful. It is violent. And we don't even realize we're doing it. Until, until that is, again, Jesus tries to rule and reign in some area of our lives that we're unwilling to surrender. Then, 
we too will use any means necessary in order to stamp out any would-be usurpers. We will cut off family, friends, church community, God himself, anyone who would encourage us or try to move us towards transferring power from ourselves to him. And sadly, the reason behind that wrathful response, even from the most gentle, peace-loving people, I believe comes down to nothing more than the reality that millennia later, we are still falling victim to the exact same deception of the serpent in the garden. That the rule and reign of God is not to be trusted. You've got to watch out. You've got to be careful. God is holding out on us somehow. That he's trying to restrict us from the fullness of life that we'd be able to experience if we were the ones in charge. Which I believe is, is part of the deliverance that we all need through this one born a child and yet a king. We need deliverance from that deception as well as the wrathful response to Jesus' rule and reign that it inspires. Because, man, when you truly get a picture of the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring us, suddenly, bowing the knee to Jesus in worship becomes the most natural thing possible. As the old prayer says, when we realize that service to him is perfect freedom, suddenly, we'll want to join the wise men in worship rather than joining Herod in his wrathful rebellion. But we need to get that picture first or we're still going to keep being deceived by the same lie that I can't really trust. I can't give him rule because he can't be trusted. We need to see what it is he truly came to bring us. Okay, that's responding with worship, responding with wrath. The last thing I want to look at together quickly is being withdrawn in our response to Jesus as king withdrawn in our response. And where you see that is a place and from players that we don't often consider in this story, namely the chief priests and teachers of the law mentioned there in verse 4. Look with me. If you noticed, Herod inquires of them where this messianic descendant of David that the Magi had come in search of, where is he supposed to be born? Notice quickly, they respond, oh, in Bethlehem in Judea. Yeah, oh, and, and here's the prophecy from Micah that, that, that tells us that that's where he'll be born. Right away, they know. And yet, did you notice, following this whole kind of throne room scene, not one of these religious rulers, not one of these steeped in the Scriptures, so quick with their theological answers to Herod's questions, Father, to join the Magi in their search for the fulfillment of this prophecy from Micah, as well as other prophecies, Messianic prophecies, Numbers 24, Isaiah 9, which speak of a star, a light coming out of Israel that would signal the birth of this Messiah, the promised rescuer of God's people. Not one of them goes. Why? Why would those who so plainly knew the promises of God not join these Gentile worshipers in their quest for the Messiah of their, of their possible fulfillment of these prophecies? Even if just to debunk them, just to go along and be like, oh yeah, no, it's not, it's not what it was. They don't even bother to go. Why, why do they remain withdrawn where they should be worshipful? I think the reason is the same reason we can recite 
often theological truths with the same freedom and dexterity as these chief priests and teachers of the law ourselves, and yet want the whole time to rule and reign over our own hearts and lives, always and ever ourselves, with the same, same degree that Herod wanted to hold on to his reign. We know the truths, we know the prophecies, we can recite them back with the same freedom. But I think it's because of withdrawn response to Jesus as king. That is, where Jesus always and ever remains at a safe, comfortable arm's length away from truly ruling, ruling and reigning over everything. Because it just sounds better. It's so, it looks so much more nice and acceptable than the wrathful response. That looks obvious to everyone. This one, the withdrawn response really flies under the radar. And, and no one will probably ever call you out on it. Because it just sounds so much nicer. It's so safe to kind of hide our rebellion underneath pretty theological language. And yet, as peaceful and agreeable as it might look to others, what I would submit to you today is that a withdrawn response to Jesus as king is no less violent. It's just simply passively violent. It's a passive violence against Jesus' rule and reign. And it's no less devastating to enjoying the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring us than the wrathful response of Herod. Both responses miss out on the fullness of life Jesus came to bring. Many of us have likely heard quotes, people say things like American philosopher Thomas Nagel, who said this, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself, I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And we hear, we hear people say that or things like that, and we just think, oh, like, what, what a sad, what a, what a shame, what a closed-minded response, however polite, to, to the loving revelation of God in Jesus at Christmas. And yet the reality is that functionally, we're operating under the same working assumption as Nagel in our withdrawn response to Jesus, that there is no king other than me. We've just cloaked our unbelief, again, with pretty theological language, all the while remaining the true sovereign of our own selves. The Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, there's a section in the books where the four future kings of Narnia and queens of Narnia, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, they are first introduced to Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the books, by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And as the children learn, first of all, that Aslan is a lion, um, Lucy, the youngest, she responds with kind of shock and horror and asks, well, lion, I mean, is he, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver kind of almost scoffingly replies, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And yet as he goes on describing Aslan to the children, uh, Lewis kind of gives us a little insight into the response of each of the children to this revelation of the king. With the, the three children, Peter, Susan, and Lucy, they feel warm, they feel adventurous, they feel wonderful as they hear about Aslan. Whereas Edmund, we're told, feels horrified 
and increasingly sick to his stomach. And if you know these stories, you know that from there, Edmund runs away from the group to join the white witch, Jadis, whose current reign over the land of Narnia makes it always winter but never Christmas, and who lures Edmund with what? The promise of power, the promise to be the sovereign over Narnia as well as over his brother and sisters. And in the end, it takes the death of Aslan to restore Edmund back to his family and to the true royal heritage he already had in Aslan's kingdom. Which I think very much mirrors both the story depicted in our passage today as well as our own lives as it relates to our responses to Jesus as the king. Worshipful, wrathful, withdrawn. And the powerful draw of the present ruler of this world to want to be our own sovereigns. I think within all of us, even those of us who would gather together on a Sunday and sing, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all, our heart, rule in all our hearts alone, I think underneath the surface in all of us, there's, there's a chorus being sung beneath the surface that's much more like the last stanza of William Ernest Henry, Henley's poem Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, nor charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And it takes the death of this one born king of the Jews. Now with that same title written above his head on the cross. In order to drown out that oh so alluring yet soul poisoning chorus. And then restore us back to the royal heritage that we truly have in Jesus' kingdom. The sons and daughters of the king. I don't know where any of this finds you today, uh, where this reaches to you in particular, or, or which of those three responses to Jesus King you now see is maybe your own default response after we've spent some time unpacking them. Where is the true king, says Keller, is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart, since we all want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. My prayer for each one of us this Christmas, myself included, is that the transfer of power from you and from me to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, would be increasingly peaceful. And that like the Magi, we would bring the most valuable of our treasures and lay them down at his feet, trusting that, first of all, the fullness of life is only truly ever found in the giver of it. That service in Jesus' kingdom truly is perfect freedom. And that although no, he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. Amen.